Cinema Spectator, a movie podcast, is produced because of listeners like you. If you want to support our show, you can share it, give us a rating on iTunes, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ecfsproductions, where you can throw a couple dollars our way and get access to our exclusive content. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Welcome to Cinema Spectator, a show where an expert and a casual movie fan watch movies in the cinematic canon. Today's film, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, directed by Peter Jackson, starring Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen. My name is Cameron Tuttle, and I'm joined with Isaac Ransom. Isaac, how are you doing? Oh, I just feel like butter spread over too much bread, Cameron. <laughs> you know? it's, it's, uh, yeah, do you? It's been an exhausting week. But, of course, watching The Fellowship was the best part of the definitely, weekend for me, definitely. you know? So, um, it was a good no, time. No, but I, I'm doing good. I'm on the upswing. Whatever qualms I faced are concluding, and it's on to bigger and better things at the mm. moment. So, mm. how about you? Um, I'm doing all right. I, you know, kicked off the week and, you know, made lunch for for the rest of the week and you know feeling feeling pretty successful uh but i i was very excited to to watch this movie with you yesterday um and you know turns out doesn't disappoint hanging out with a friend watching fellowship it's a good time it's a good time i agree i agree um you and juzo just went crazy last week when i was not here (laughs) I was like, yeah. why are there two notifications? What is even happening here? You know? Yeah, we put Extra- out two. Uh, well, yeah, I guess um, we did do another episode without you, another Halloween-themed episode without you, um, right? That was, uh, I forget what it was. But we we also did Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, we did a surprise review of that, so go check that out. Um, and we did Cabin in the Woods on Halloween. So I did want to, mm. we, we had, we watched Killers of the Flower Moon. And so I wanted to talk about it. Um, but I didn't want to sacrifice the, the movie that was, you know, coming out on Halloween basically. So, uh, we did both and you know, it was a good time. We, we enjoyed it. Um, so yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen Cabin in the Woods. I remember enjoying it. I remember thinking yeah. it was pretty fun, pretty wacky. Yeah, a it's a good movie. I, I think it was a good discussion, too, about sort of the tropes of horror, um, some of the things that it's playing with, and, you know, kind of how how the movie, in some ways, is actually, uh, you know, we talked a lot about how, you know, Joss Whedon and, you know, those, those guys from that era um, who were, like, kind of the new, up-and-coming, kind of edgier filmmakers... Um, we talked about how that, that left a bad taste, uh, as far as, you know, what they, what they ended up doing with Marvel movies and with superhero movies. Um, and there's kind of, there's been this Marvelization of all other media, you know, where everybody's quippy, everybody has the same, you know, one liners. And we were saying how the opposite kind of happened in the case of, of horror movies after Cabin in the Woods, you know, horror started to, to become more serious, more, uh, less about sort of the tropes and the classic, you know, themes of horror and more about 
these sort of ethereal mythological um, stories that were a little more interesting. So, um, you know, Avengers left a bad legacy, maybe, and uh, Cabin in the Woods left a good legacy. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it, they're kind of at that sparking precipice, right? I always thought Cabin in the Woods was more fun and goofy, whereas I consider most of the horror in the teens much more... Uh, I don't know, there, there's a modern phrase. I was texting Tim about it where he was like... I don't remember what phrase it was, but it was almost like... Like, just like suspense horror where like nothing's happening, but it's just eerie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I forget what the term is for that, but... Um, and then Killers, I know I we talked about it briefly uh, when we were hanging out. Where does it rank for the audience? I mean, you're you're off the review, right? People can listen to your full opinion impressions, but I haven't seen it yet. In terms of like Scorsese's work, uh, we've watched a lot of good ones. I mean, yeah. Does it does it have a chance to be in in his in his upper echelon, or do you believe that this will be one of those films that is kind of towards middle of the pack? Um, I would say it's like higher middle for me. Um, just in terms of like how how fondly I think of a lot of his other movies, um, even something like The Irishman, I think is just it's it's you know The Irishman might be his his best movie ever. I don't know, um, and you know it's it's hard to kind of come from that um, and do a movie that's a very different tone, but still kind of picking up on those themes. Um, for me, I, I loved it. I think it's brilliant. I think what he's trying to do is really interesting and, and unique and something that I don't think I've seen from his movies, um, just in terms of, of how he's, uh, how these characters are really portrayed without, without any, um, grace at all. Uh, you know, there's, there's just a, uh, a strong, strong condemnation where in a lot of his other movies, I think, um, even someone like Jordan Belfort, you know, he's got charm and he's got charisma and that's part of his downfall, you know? And I think, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's a much different character that he's, that he's working with, um, in Killers of the Flower Moon. So I think that can be a turnoff. That was part of, um, I don't want to say Juzo didn't like it, but I think that was one of the things that bothered Juzo a bit was he felt, um, I think he struggled because the characters are just so, um, just so awful and have zero redeeming qualities. Um, I think that's good. I think it makes it, the movie a lot more interesting and complex. And I think while we talked about it, he was kind of opening up to some of the ideas that, that Scorsese was, was playing with. I mean, the thing that I kept going to was sort of the banality of evil, um, how things are kind of working on a very mundane level. Um, and it, it just, yeah, it's, I think it's a really, you know, obviously Scorsese has become more and more mature and less and less, um, interested in sort of the flashy, uh, you know, style heavy kinds of movies. So with that, I mean, I think, I think there's, um, I don't know. It's just it's just on a different level than something like Goodfellas or something, you know, in his earlier career. I think I think he's just working on a more um, a more mature plane in some ways. So mm-hmm. 
I'm excited to watch it. I probably won't see it in theaters. Um, it's just, I don't know. I, yeah. I from the ads and everything, I was kind of like, I just, I, it, it seems long. I feel like I'd like to consume it in bits, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah. No, but, I, I, I get that, and it is long. Um, that's another reason why I think a lot of people, uh, to be honest, a lot of people loved the movie, so I don't want to make it sound like people are hating it or anything but um i don't know i can see why there can be certain complaints um i don't mind normally i i don't like longer movies i think there's a few exceptions where i you know i quite appreciate the length and i want there to be sometimes i want there to be more though with this movie i do think um not that things could be cut, but I, I do think, um, uh, I don't want to say it struggles pace-wise, but, but it does get caught up a little bit, um, it, it, you know, towards the middle. I, I feel like there's certain things that, um, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it, but you know, it goes over the same ground in in just different, you know, with different characters and, you know, it's, I think it's, I think it's good. You know, but Juzo wasn't, he wasn't quite as enthused as I was. So, well, you guys can listen to that review and hear kind of the breakdown of thoughts. I don't have much more to add to the conversation. Um, but Scorsese's best film, The Irishman. I don't know. I don't know. I have to revisit it. It's been a really long time since I've seen it, and I really liked it when I first saw it. Yeah. Um, but we've watched a lot of Scorsese at this point. So, yeah. Um, it would be interesting to go back to it. I want to ask. Oh um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to ask if you had watched anything because we haven't seen each other in a um, in a couple weeks, or you haven't been on the show in a couple weeks. So, have you been have you been watching anything in the meantime? To be honest, I can't think of a f- like a movie that I've like sat down and watch watched. Um, the other night, I had a moment. I was like, "Yeah, we can we can," because I I've watched bits and pieces. Like I watched some of dune and a couple other pieces of of things to watch and um jules and i sat down to watch a movie the other night and we ended up watching just some rom-com um that had like Nicki minaj in it called the other woman it was just horrible (laughs) i really hated every second of it um just to know like just for rom-coms like don't make your character like like they have like <laughs> they have this weird dynamic where there's like this strong successful businesswoman uh i guess the plot is like this strong successful businesswoman has an affair with uh somebody's husband and then she meets the wife and they become friends but the wife is like very sympathetic and like dorky and like feels intimidated and sad but they like double down on the businesswoman's character <laughs> and she's like extra mean to the wife. It's like, what the heck is going on here? You know, like who wrote this? It's very yeah. strange. You know, you'd think she'd be more sympathetic to the wife whose marriage is ruined, but that's so a very, funny. very weird tone in the film, mm. like an off-putting tone. Uh, so 
I don't recommend The Other Woman, which I know our audience was really excited to hear what I thought of that film. Yeah, so. I'm glad you gave us that warning. I, I yeah. was, it was on my list, actually. Yeah. Well, you asked, you know, what I've been watching. So uh, <laughs> this is Cinema Spectator. You can support us at patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. Throw a couple dollars our way, get bonus access to some of our Patreon-exclusive episodes and commentary tracks. Cameron and I did a commentary track last month. Uh, I don't even remember what the commentary track was on. It was uh, it was It Follows, which is now getting right. a sequel just because of us, I think. I, think I knew we it. Predicted I it. knew it. <laughs> They're big directors, big fans of the show. You know, big True. fans. And uh, yeah, we're also doing commentary track this month for Lord of the Rings with The Fellowship of the Ring. We recorded that last night uh, while we watched it. A lot of fun. We're going to dig into some of the things that we brought up. I said this at the beginning of the commentary track for you patrons, but... I would say the first 20 minutes, maybe, you know, hour. No, it's of, longer than that. It's longer than that. For the first <laughs> you know, half, we're, we're into it. You know, we're, we're talking, we're, we're goofing over it. The last half is just so good that we had to, we had to watch it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you've been afraid to watch a commentary track, you know, Cameron and I work very hard to make sure that you have a lot of content there. Uh, and then we slowly daze into just watching the film. There will be long <laughs> pauses of silence. Uh, but I would say if you're a patron, please check that out. Uh, if you want to support us, you know where to go. If you don't have a few dollars, it's all good. Giving the show a rating, sharing the show, all that stuff helps our small production grow. We appreciate you being here. We thank you for listening to our podcast. And uh, we hope you're having a great start to your November. Cameron, mm. we're getting into Peter Jackson. We're doing yeah. some Lord of the Rings. I think we're kind of split if we want to do another Peter Jackson movie at the, the end of this month, or if we just want to continue with Lord of the Rings. I, I kind of, um, I kind of think I, I would really like to watch King Kong, but it would also be really cool to watch, uh, like the animated Hobbit movie or one of the animated Lord of the Rings movies. Um, because I've never seen those either. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, obviously, these movies are very long, so we might we might feel like after Thanksgiving we don't want to watch one of these movies, and we'll that's right. You know, put that's it, right. we'll you know leave it for the next week or something. So we might just take a break or something. But um, but you know, I mean, the, we I was ready to watch uh, the next one today. So you know, it was yeah. like one of those things. I was like, yes, I can't wait, can't wait to watch it again. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I feel like. I haven't seen other than Beatles Get Back, which I loved and, you know, I, I think is amazing. And we could watch that. I mean, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. But, um, you know, other than that, I feel like I haven't seen another Jackson movie that I've been like super in love with and in, in the way that I would want to to watch it for the show or watch it with you. I mean, maybe we could go to earlier Jackson. We could do like dead alive or something, which would be fun, I guess. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think we'll, we'll let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. We could also do the hot, the first Hobbit, I guess. Um, not that I would want to, or, uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't really want to. So, um, but we could, it could be on the agenda. We'll see. Yeah, I, I I don't really know what we're doing besides watching the original trilogy of uh, Lord of the Rings. So you can expect that for the next few weeks. Um, Cameron and I are big fans of this 
this franchise, I don't think we need to really explain too much about it. We grew up with it. Um, and I think, and this is what I said on the commentary track, I think it would be very interesting uh, to view this trilogy in context of what we've done on the show, to look at them sort of from like a narrative building standpoint, a character writing standpoint, to sort of look at the acting and think, you know, how is it held up? The casting. There's a bunch of technical things you kind of pick up as you begin to review movies that I've never really viewed uh, with this film. I've always mm-hmm. just thought it looks amazing. It's like kind of enchanting. You're just kind of sucked into it with, you know, this beautiful opening. And then it kind of gets darker and darker and you're on this journey. And uh, it's always been a comfort food kind of movie for me. Um, I've never tried to look into it too deeply. Um, but throughout our commentary chat, Cameron and I talked a lot about like, well, let's try to dissect and pull apart some of these things that make this more than just a comfort movie. I mean, Spider-Man three is a comfort movie for me. Right. (laughs) And if I watch that film, I could sit there and pick it apart, but I'm not going to. And then that's how I've always felt about, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So, I do have a few critiques that I'm surprised about watching mm. it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think this viewing for me was just... There's just a stunning attention to detail across everything in this film. Um, yeah. And as the credits rolled with Fellowship, I kind of sat back and was like, is this my favorite Lord of the Rings? I, it might be, you know? <laughs> Uh, I, it might be my favorite, like, period. I think yeah. it, I, it is It is extremely impressive, Cameron. How was, how was this viewing for you? How did you feel uh, watching it in context of having to review it afterwards? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, um, I mean, I've always loved this movie. Um, it's interesting because the, the, my opinions of all three are kind of pretty constant. I would say uh, Fellowship and Return of the King are the standouts for me. And and then every time I watch The Two Towers, I'm, like, amazed and impressed by it. You know, it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, I I forget how much I love it. Um, so it, it is it is an odd... Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it's an odd situation there where um, I do feel like... In my, in my mind, uh, Two Towers does get a little shafted, but I guess we'll, we'll get into that, uh, next week for me. I've always, um, like you said, this is, I, this is probably the easiest one to just sit and watch, um, in terms of, you don't need to know anything about the characters. You don't need to have watched the seven hours before, uh, this, you know, before return of the King or whatever. Like this is a movie that you can just sit down and enjoy, um, and even just put on, it feels very like, it's almost like Christmassy, you know, there's like something about it that feels very, um, homely, at least for the first hour, maybe hour and a half of the movie. Um, and, and I, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, when I first watched the movie, I always thought the first hour, um, takes too long. And it's kind of this, it's it's a little it's a little droning like it it I don't know for me it was always it was always the part I thought about least and liked the least because um, it's you know it's just about the hobbits it's about their you know their little town and they're getting into trouble and you know blah 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 um, 
but as I've, I feel like as I've grown up, it, that's become some of my favorite parts of the whole, um, the whole series in, in a lot of ways, like just the, the, um, the sweetness of, of the Shire, the very like, um, I don't know, the, the intentional, um, invitingness like it you know it, it feels like it's it's made uh to feel comfortable in a lot of ways hmm. um and yeah i don't know for me it's it's you know watching something like um the deer hunter which is something we we referenced last night when we were watching the movie um really reminds me of the journey that uh, you know, you feel through these three movies where, you know, they, they go through and they have this, you know, adventure, but it changes them so much on the, on the inside that um, there's no way to get back to home. And while you're watching the, the start of, of the deer hunter, you're like, okay, this wedding is literally going on forever. Like, I can't even believe it's like we're 45 minutes into the movie and the movie hasn't started. Um, and, and, I don't know. That's kind of the same feel. And then, you know, by the time you get to the end, you're like, man, I really wish they would just be able to go back and redo the wedding and, you know, have have this this fun, enjoyable time. Like I miss that, you know, and there's that sort of nostalgia about um, about what what happened, like literally an hour earlier in the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think I think you get that. I don't know about on a on a grander scale here, but you get, you absolutely get that with, with this series. And I think, um, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it, it's, it struck me yesterday how much I appreciate those, you know, that very kind of extended sequence in, in the beginning of this movie. Um, just going, going through the details of the Shire and, um, you know, kind of the, the the sweetness of it all i guess yeah i think there's so much going on in in this series that can be looked at kind of on a like like it's you can't really talk about it just in one movie um but i think watching fellowship you can sort of break it down as like a much more contained experience whereas the second one and the third one feels like they're leaning on on the first one in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially the third one, although it's like an incredible conclusion and it has its own kind of arcs happening within it, um, it's really supported. You have to look at it as a whole package. So to talk about like Deer Hunter, it has like kind of this very focused thing of like lost nostalgia. where Right, and, and it's like something that you lose as you go on this adventure and you come back, you know, and it's like that. It's very concise. Um, and I think what's impressive about Lord of the Rings is that it's able to kind of cut away at enough of that so that that's a present emotion. It's a present factor, uh, without being the sole focus. Um, and I think what's the most impressive about this trilogy is how it's able to include so much, that's outside of the focus and still remain really easy for the audience to follow and understand like what's going on. And, uh, even if you don't really fully understand, like a second viewing makes it, um, 
more exciting or, or, or there's always something to pick up. I mean, even when we were watching it this time, there was, there was stuff that I was like, I don't remember any of this. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the extended edition, like it just, it's kind of like soaking with lore. It's soaking with emotion. It's, it has so much going for it. And then if you kind of push away all of the, the extra things that some movies focus on, there is still like a primary focus. Uh, and I think that's probably the first thing that I want to get into uh, with the fellowship. And I think it's the thing that most people don't actually think about uh, with this movie is like what it's trying to say, uh, because it is trying to say something actually, which I was really surprised about. I'm not saying every movie has to say something, but what's weird is when you think about the fellowship, you think about that's the start to a great franchise. I love the beginning. There's all these, dramatic moments there's tragic moments there's heroic moments uh and it's a it's a roller coaster ride but what i was really surprised with on this viewing is i sat back and said okay i'm gonna be a film critic right i'm gonna say like uh is this just a nerdy movie that's like you know just for the audience's enjoyment um and i think that the movie's more than that Mm. Uh, which I was surprised by. I thought it kind of wasn't. Um, but there's very key... I mean, we are going to be spoiling Fellowship, so if you haven't seen it, watch it. Watch the whole trilogy, however you want to watch it. Uh, I recommend the extended. It's on HBO. But um, if you if you hate fantasy and whatnot, I, I, I can't imagine that this is going to be for you, but I still think give it a shot, you know? Mm. Um, but let's just dig right into kind of what was the big takeaway for me, um, which is, is the line that Gandalf shares with Frodo halfway through the movie. And it circles back at the very end to kind of be that clear statement. He says, um, Frodo's basically saying, I, I can't believe the hand I was dealt. In yeah. You know, why did it have, why did all this stuff have to happen to me? Um, and Gandalf says, a lot of people wonder that. Many people wonder that. Um, but it's not about what you've been given. It's what you choose to do with the time that you're given, right? And I was like, that was that is so deep, <laughs> you know? Like, that is like an incredibly deep message for this nerdy, goofy, uh, like, fantasy um, adventure. Uh and I think it it clearly is just honing in on what the source material is hitting at. I mean, Tolkien's Tolkien's work is the is the core, is the Bible of this of this franchise. But um, it's just impressive that you know Peter Jackson can can read that book with incredible adventure, so much going on, so much lore explained, and he's able to say like, what is this? What is this book saying in its last moments? Or what is it saying as the whole, and how am I going to wrap this into a film package that makes sense for an audience uh, when the audience isn't going to read all the context? They're not going to understand all the little details of Sam letting the pony go, you know, at the Mines of Moria, which is an extended scene, but whatever. You know, like like little things like that, where the book spends so much time on these small, insignificant... um, Well, they're not insignificant, but they're... (laughs) Like the general audience would be bored if they heard the full lore of uh uh what is it, Mithril or whatever, <laughs> like like the chain mail that he wears and stuff. Like 
you know, they, they spend a line on it. And even that is probably a distraction for the audience. They're still able to hone in on these core messages and emotions that I think are quite relatable for so many people. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I was, I was going to say with that, um, you know, you, you talk about the mithril thing. I think one thing that Jackson does really, really well, um, in terms of the filmmaking side of things is he knows the language of, of film in that, um, you want something to, to, to harken back to basically the earlier part of the film, or you want thing you want there to be a setup and a payoff, um, mm-hmm, later on. Mm-hmm. And this whole trilogy is, is full of setups and payoffs and it really is, um, special. So even something small as, um, the, the mithril, you know, is something that is, has a dramatic, um, payoff, you know, in, in that battle sequence, which, which is great. It's like, you know, something that you forget about, uh, that he's been wearing this, this, you know, awesome lightweight armor, armor, basically. Um, you know, and it's just, it, uh, I think in some ways that's a credit to, um, to Jackson as a, as you know, he's able to take the language of, um, you know, the written word of, of Tolkien and, and he's able to, um, to translate it, it to the, to the language of film. Um, and it, it's, it's also impressive because basically everybody thought that, it was going to be impossible. Um, everybody thought it was, it was not going to be able to happen. Um, even the, you know, the first round of, of funding basically that they, they got was from, uh, Miramax and, uh, they were going to do it in two movies instead of three. Um, which probably would have destroyed a lot of, you know, what we love about all three of these movies, which is the, the detail and the, um, you know, the, the sort of the great translation of the books, I guess. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a good thing that he was, he was able to do it this way. Um, and I think, I think it does go to his skill as, um, as a filmmaker, you know, in, in this era where he's, he's able to, to take the, you know, the words, that Tolkien wrote and make them interesting for, for a visual audience, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it is what makes most movie adaptations of books fail, right? Is this idea that you can translate. I mean, there, there's the script element that's difficult. I think you have to choose which details you want to remain in what you're going to explain and describe that's written out in the book versus what people actually say in the book and then what they say in the movie, right? Um, Yeah, I just think it's... I think the setup and payoff in... Like, that idea in movies is so quickly forgotten, um, (laughs) which is just shocking. Uh, And it feels especially true with... um, It feels especially true with like kind of book adaptations. I mean, it it seems like that is what's missing in the Hobbit trilogy in some regard. There's no satisfaction in watching the Hobbit trilogy. Um, you can, I think, it, its best moments are 
when payoff comes forward. It's not when they have the fat troll with the hanging chin yell at them. It's it's the part where there's payoff from what was set up in the book, like riddles in the dark with, you know, Smeagol and Bilbo, right? That that scene, the only reason it's good in the movie is because it was good in the book. And it was mm. good because it was set up and payoff in the book. So the setup and payoff on the film makes so much sense, right? Um, yeah, it's just, I think you're 100% right with um, Fellowship. I think what's impressive, or why Fellowship might be my favorite, is because it does the setup and payoff all within the one movie, where mm-hmm. the second and third film feel like there's so much payoff from earlier. Um yeah, I mean, I in some ways, I I think that's impressive as well. In that, yeah, um, you know, even stuff that was set up in this first movie does get paid off in you know the second and third movie. Obviously, the one that <laughs> is is not paid off is Saruman's exit in the original uh, theatrical version, um, which is a bummer. I mean, I think that's that's a that's a tough thing to to have to cut, obviously. I still don't believe it. Like I still yeah, don't. It is I can't hard to believe it. <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> imagine know? that they could literally just kill off the main, like one of the main villains, and have it just be off screen. You know, nobody, nobody thinks about it. Nobody, no, nobody talks about it ever again in the movie. So I don't know. It, it's yeah. It's it's. Um, I don't know if that was the right choice, but I think um, he made it for for editing reasons. You know. Um, and, and it was, it was sort of a pacing decision, um, with the third movie, but you know, that's, that's one of the, the, I would say probably the major criticism of, of the franchise in some ways. Um, but I, I will say one thing that I've always loved about fellowship is with the other ones you can kind of, for me, I can nitpick certain details of it. Um, I think even, like it's tough. We always, you know, watch the extended editions. Um, you and me probably from like our whole life. Yeah. Um, but there is a, I think there's a worse choice pacing wise in the third film that we'll get into, uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, but with this first one, I was, I was just shocked at how, um, engaged I was, you know, basically the whole time. I think for a four hour movie, basically, I, it really captivates you, um, you know, throughout the whole thing. And there's there's not a whole lot um, that, you know, I felt dragged or, you know, was, was extraneous. Even in, you know, the extended cuts, I feel like it, they all give more character to, to, you know, one character or another. And I think, I think everything... I don't know. Everything feels so cohesive in this movie. And and I think you're right in in a certain sense that this is the most that feels like a movie in some ways. Mm-hmm. This is the most that feels like um you know, if it, it feels like it has a great story that's that's you know kind of condensed in this one you know, this one story basically. It's you know, it's starting from the naive Frodo, um, who gets, you know, this sort of mysterious object 
thrust upon him. Um, he has no, you know, agency in terms of, of, you know, keeping the ring and, or, you know, whatever else he's kind of given this, um, this crucible and, um, throughout the movie, you know, he, his, his journey, um, is to basically step up to be the hero that he needs to be eventually. Um, you know, and that's, that's where he finds himself at the end of this movie. Um, pushing off away from everybody else, um, going on his own, you know, without the fellowship, um, to, to complete his journey because he knows that it's, it's going to be more dangerous, um, if he, if he goes with, with the fellowship. Um, and so that, that journey, that cohesive storyline, this character arc is something that you, you get a complete, um, picture of you know there's at the beginning of of frodo's character um and at the end he's he's totally changed he's someone who's who's seen things and learned things um and is kind of a different person because of it and this is the start of him uh you know taking up the mantle and the other two i think you do you do see certain changes um especially probably towards the end of the third one um, but you know, for the most part, he's the guy who n- has taken the mantle, even though he didn't want to, you know, and that's like his character for the rest of these movies. But I think right. Frodo in this movie is the one who, who truly has, um, you know, the best journey. Um, and, and I think, I think it really works to make this first one about, about his story. And then obviously in, um, in two towers, a lot of the story is about, um, you know, the fracturing of, of, uh, the fellowship and, um, about Gandalf and and about his, his sort of journey. And the third one I would say is, is much more a journey about, about Aragorn. Um, that kind of takes, takes a lot of focus. So you do get these sort of, uh, protagonist characters throughout the rest of the, um, the trilogy, but I think this movie specifically is is kind of really keying in on Frodo and on his, um, you know, his. his it's it's the. Um, did you ever read? Uh, it's a it's a book called Save the Cat. Um, uh, it's a screenwriting book um, by Blake Snyder. Um, basically, his he um, he outlines a you know story archetypes. Um, and he, and so he has, he, it's inspired by, um, by the, the hero's journey and, um, man with a thousand faces. Um, but it's, it's kind of, uh, the, the main kickoff point for your story, um, is the call and the rejection of the call. Um, and that happens with a lot of stories, right? You think about Star Wars, um, Luke, uh, Luke is called by, um, by Ben Kenobi, uh, to, you know, come learn the ways of the force and to join the rebellion and whatnot. Um, and he says no at first. He says, um, you know, I've got things here. I've, I've, (laughs) I've, I can't just abandon my family, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then what makes him join the call and what makes him, you know, actually join the adventure is, um, you know, the, the death of, of uncle Owen and, and Aunt Beru. Um, 
And, you know, that's that's kind of what changes his character. And I would say this whole movie is the call and the rejection of the call into um, actually accepting, you know, the call on Frodo's behalf. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely Frodo's film. And I love, like, like one of the things that I noticed was Sam is barely in this movie, it feels like, when you watch yeah, it. Yeah, um, that's true. Where Sam is, like, such an important character in the later films. And, and so is Gollum. Gollum's barely in this movie. Gollum totally gets a spotlight in the second film uh, with Sam as well. Uh, and then Frodo, Frodo just kind of remains um, burdened, right? He, be, he becomes less less of a developing character and more of a, um, he is like who he is at that point, you know? Um, and there's some tension and whatnot, but I think like Gollum has the most depth in, uh, in, in the second film. And then, uh, um, Sam has like a ton of depth in the third film as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's cool how they kind of pass, the torch to different characters throughout. Uh, I think um, Boromir steals a lot of the spotlight in Fellowship, whereas Legolas and Gimli are much more to the side where they get handed uh, more of the torch in the two towers um, with uh, Aragorn, and and Aragorn does steal the show with um, the return of the king. And they introduce some new ones as well with uh, Faramir and um, Denethor and all that, like those cool yeah. little plot lines that are coming up. But we, we're, we're, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to those moments. But it is amazing how this trilogy is able to um, start with a massive cast, give you exactly enough of what you need of each one, and then give them more and more screen time as it goes. And it feels like you always want more and more screen time with these characters. Mary and Pippin are just comic relief in the fellowship and they, they change a lot all the way up until the final film where they're separated. Right. Yeah. And, and there's so much more depth with them by the end of the the trilogy than what you expect. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think the more, um, I'm thinking about it, Cameron, I think what makes this fantasy adventure so, rewarding is what you said at the beginning, which is pay payoffs, right? Um, it's actually what I think makes people consider game of Thrones and the aim, the same echelon as Lord of the Rings. They say, Oh, well it's fantasy. So it kind of feels the same except game of Thrones is more gritty. Um, to me, I think game of Thrones is a little excessive in some regard, in a lot of regards. Um, but it does do the same payoff thing. That, yeah. uh, where they set up, they set up and they pay off and they pay off and it just can kind of continue to go on for so long until they forget to keep setting up stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, they, and then they don't have any payoffs and then the show kind of teeters out. It's what makes, um, it like incredible TV as well. Uh, and it just seems like the Lord of the Rings trilogy probably would have been a TV series. Uh, it just happened to be at the, the culmination of the Hollywood machine. I mean, the, the early 2000s just had some insane productions, which uh, should not have been made, it feels like. 
uh, yeah. from <laughs> yeah. the amount of effort put into the Titanic, right? <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, to things like this, even the Star Wars uh, prequels, just having an absurd uh, production value using innovative technologies when they didn't, when they're not even that incredible of, of films, right? And that's coming from somebody that loves them. Like, I love those movies. Um, it's just, it's such an impressive time in Hollywood. The budgets are outrageous and the the audiences are, are going to the theaters. I mean, there's no streaming services, right? Yeah. I can remember my dad during this time going to watch uh, Lord of the Rings in the theaters. 2003, I definitely remember him going to see Return of the King with his friend Rob. Um, this, this was a big deal for him. He had read the books. When I grew up, he said, if you want to watch the movies, you have to read the books first. Uh, I only got through about half of the books. Uh, I read the first one. So this movie is very special to me for that reason. Uh, and then I read half of The Two Towers, which The Two Towers book is split into um, like kind of two books uh, where the movie cross cuts. The book doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Don't they, um, they follow one storyline and then they go back and follow the other? Right. Yeah. And that was that was a debate with the production of this movie, or sorry, of of the two towers. Um, it, the debate was, you know, should we keep it the same as as the book? And I think another reason I give credit to to Peter Jackson is, you know, he's he's able to know that that's probably not going to work um, in movie form. It's probably going to annoy the audience, and it's going to be a lot better if we have the you know, contiguous cross-cutting um, thing that's going on. And I think it's it's easier to follow something like that. And even mm-hmm. in a book, um, you know, I don't. I, I guess I'm I'm not familiar with fiction of of the era. I guess, um, but I I imagine there's there was books at the time that did sort of the cross-cutting thing. I mean, obviously this is much much later, but. Um, uh, the songs of ice and fire um books they they do cross cutting and they do it by following characters um so one character will do you know you'll follow one character for a chapter and then you'll move on to someone else and you'll follow them for a chapter um so i i don't know i i do feel like um it's probably a good choice to <laughs> to to cross cut um just narratively, I think that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I, we can we can look at it more. I would be interesting to watch a cut of those movies without the cross cutting. That would be really <laughs> weird. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it, and and so let's let's kind of get into some of the characters here um, that are that were introduced to in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, and we can talk about casting a little bit as well. Um, yeah, so Elijah Wood as Frodo gets the spotlight. He's really good in it. This is where some of the criticism comes forward too, is I think there's a lot of like goofy overacting in this movie. Um, <laughs> it's meme-worthy acting. And I think with a critical eye, I sort of picked it out. Um, but it's never, I don't think it's ever uh, distracting, which is yeah, which is good. Um, cause you know, you can, you can watch people, um, act like, like they're, they're supposed to be surprised. So they act really surprised and it still fits, you know, the music and the camera work and everything. It's, it's there in the right way. 
um, that it's it kind of just moves forward. But there's some moments with like Ian Holm just being crazy or something. You know, there's just moments in this movie where um, it seems like uh, there's a little bit of goofy overacting um and to me it's endearing i could see some people being like this is pretty ridiculous um but that was kind of my my main critique i would say like i think i don't know for me it it's always worked i've never um also because there's there are those uh flamboyant and kind of over the top characters a lot of them are the are the hobbits and then the humans are very kind of laid back and, and much more reserved. Um, you know, they, they don't have a lot of, um, like, outbursts in the same way. And when they do, it's a, it's a much different tone. Um, so in some ways, I, I, I kind of like that there's, you know, the, the hobbits act different than the humans. And the humans act different than the elves. And the elves act different than the dwarves, you know, there's, there's like, it almost feels like, um, that sort of overacting is, is a little intentional in in some ways, like all of the over the top moments in, in this movie, um, you know, it's with Elijah Wood or it's with, um, you know, it's, it's with Ian Holm, as you said, or, you know, it feels like, it feels like they, the hobbits are a little more animated. Um, so I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's unintentional. Intentional. I don't know. I, I think it's across the board in a lot of ways. I don't think it's, I think it's just maybe it's the first film and there, and there's a little bit less. I, it, maybe it's just a different time. There's some cheesy camp to it, uh, that, that works. It's in the right place. Whereas you watch like the Hobbit trilogy and the overacting seems uncomfortable <laughs> in moments, right? Or like just like kind of cringy. Um in this movie there's there's not really any cringe uh on every everything feels um very genuine with the way it's yeah. put together. You said yeah. during the commentary track that Peter Jackson claimed that this was the the highest production low budget movie ever made. Yeah, and, that, uh, that, the most expensive low budget movie ever made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I think there's moments you can you can feel that spirit in it, but I think it only adds to the charm. Um because by no means does it look like a like a low budget film. I mean, yeah, and it's visuals. not a low budget movie. It's it I mean, at the time in 2000 um, I think all three had a budget of like a hundred million dollars, um, yeah. or a little more. And, you know, they go on to make like three billion, um, total, but, um, you know, at the time that's a huge investment for new line cinema. Who's like literally kind of on death's doorstep at this point. <laughs> like right. they are, they are, they need a hit essentially. Yeah. Um, so Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe the low budget thing is related to the, uh, like some of the acting or something or the zooms or there's like, you can tell there's a little bit of the, the horror background that Peter Jackson comes from seeping through the edges of this movie. Maybe yeah. it's the way that the crew acted together that made it, 
less serious and more um, lighthearted and fun. Um, yeah, I just think that uh, the movie comes together in, in a lot of great ways. Um, so moving through the cast, Ian McKellen, what I really loved about his performance this time that we talked about uh, is that he's ex- extremely genuine with interpersonal connection. I mean, you can you can feel his his like love and care for the people that he's interacting with. But the rest of the time, I love that he has sort of like this disconnected from reality sort of presence where he's, he's on a different wavelength than everybody else. And that's what makes him a really mysterious guide. You were mentioning at the beginning of the movie, he has a mystery. You don't know his intention at first, right? Yeah. But he's always intentionally engage with people on a conversational basis it's just as soon as he's out of that he's much more like like, or he kind of sways in and out of that yeah Um, which which brings a a a great side to his performance i always forget about the moment where they're in the mines and he they have to just take a break because gandalf forgot where they're going yeah (laughs) you know like it's just a funny it's just a funny moment that you're like oh yeah gandalf like you think of him as kind of the the wise, um, the wise sorcerer at, at the beginning of this movie, but even then, you know, he has to ride to to Gondor um, to uh, go in the library and look up what the ring actually is. You know, like uh, check if the, check if this is the right one, basically. Um, and then, you know, I was saying in the commentary, I, I was like, I always think it's funny that he kind of sends them off on their own and he goes to like consult his friend, basically. Um, like it just seems a little dangerous, I guess. Like here's a couple hobbits, like go meet me at this inn, uh, you know, at the, at this random town. It's probably not that far away, you know, geographically, but I just, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's kind of interesting that he would like send them off, um, in that way i guess um you know and and i think this is for me this is where you get most of gandalf's character moments um i feel like in the in the rest of the movies not to say that he's sidelined but he's for most of those two movies um he's kind of on side quests i guess um, he's doing something else that's also important to the story, but it's not like directly related to the objective, I guess. Um, and in this movie, I mean, he's like, he's the guy who's, who's trying to take them all, you know, to, to Rivendell. He's, he's the guy who's like getting the team together. And, you know, like this is, this is kind of as much his quest as it is, um, Frodo's quest, which is also why it's such a devastating loss, um, in this movie when, when he, um, you know, gets, gets, um, you know, he, he, he gets whipped by the, by the Balrog. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just an interesting, interesting to see them sort of interplay. And like you were saying, um, his moment, you know, sort of some of the last things that you get from the movie um, are a recall of of um, Gandalf and Frodo talking about his position in life, talking about how Frodo didn't choose to have this happen to him, um, but 
now he has to choose what to do next. Um, and I, th- I think it's a really smart thing to have these characters who are now, um, for the rest of the movies, who are going to be totally different, um, have them, uh, you know, kind of end these movies, end this movie um, with the reflection of why that is um, and, and sort of how fate has put them there. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think, I think it's really, in some ways, this is the story of both Frodo and of Gandalf. Yeah. Gandalf's character in the first film is, is much more like, like a experienced person making wise decisions or, or trying to like, like is he, j- he just is much more of the wise Sage, not perfect, but you can tell he has insight. Whereas in the later films, he's kind of like this uh, queen on the on the on the chessboard, where he represents <laughs> yeah, like yeah. like good. He he is like genuinely making brute plays for good uh, in the kingdom of Middle Earth, right? Uh, and that's like his main role. Whether it's him fighting like Nazgul with the white horse, you know, outside of Gondor, or he's like getting, uh, Theoden back from his, his like kind of dark place. Um, he just kind of becomes like this, this pillar of, of like, like he's like a big support, uh, to the, to the team and the force of good against evil. Um, whereas in this film, he, he kind of is, I like him in this state of Gandalf the Grey. He's at a loss a little bit. He's like, I'm not yeah. quite sure <laughs> where or what I'm supposed to be doing at this point. Yeah, it's like uh, he's, for all of his life, kind of, he's like known what to do in some sense. Or that's the picture that you get. Obviously, we don't know much about Gandalf before, you know, this this trilogy. Um, but then, uh, at this point, he's he's in uncharted waters. He's handling a magic that he doesn't he doesn't have the power to control. Um, and he's going up against all odds basically to um, to destroy it on on what is essentially a suicide mission for all of them. Um, and I think I asked you um, yesterday why um, why would Gandalf know um, or sorry, why why would Gandalf? Um, let Frodo decide where they go, um, you know, go, going through the mines of Moria. Um, when he knows that there's, there's the Balrog there and he is aware of the danger that's, that's on the path. And I think just as I was saying it, um, you know, a few moments ago, part of the realization that, that Gandalf has, I think, is that they are going to go through challenges Literally, no matter what, there are <laughs> there are no uh, good routes to take. Essentially, he always is faced with decisions to take up the mantle that Frodo's supposed to take, and he's unable to do it. There's mm. like a block, despite his decisions. Right? Yeah. Whether it's his first moment with the ring alone after uh, Bilbo drops it, it's like it seems like he would have been the one at one time to kind of take the initiative on, on dealing with something like this and he cannot. Um, so he's placed in a mentorship role, which I think is interesting for, um, 
a character like him because he could be like the the Ben Kenobi character. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, he's it's like it's uncharted for him because he didn't necessarily. It's like he wasn't gunning to be the lead for everyone, but he's sort of like this emotional support, which makes his sacrifice much more devastating for the entire party. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas like Ben Kenobi's like him dying is like devastating for Luke. Uh, And I guess everybody else is a little upset, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, but it's a big deal for Luke. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal for Luke. And in this movie, it's like, it's a big deal for everyone. Um, Yeah. That that Gandalf's gone, so he's and he's he, got. You you could say that he's like he in some ways he's he's the glue that's keeping everybody together at this yeah, point yeah. of of the party. Um, he's the one who, after his disappearance, um, you know his the the party fractures. Um, people start, you know, um, going against their their good urges, you know, essentially and. And breaking up the party, um, you know, and I, I think even I, I like obviously the po- the point of the fellowship, um, you know, in, in the first place is and and why Elrond has you know basically elected that they all go on this journey is to have the um, the council of people who are you know very different and have real true beefs with each other um, unite against the even greater force of evil. Um, And, you know, once Gandalf is out of the picture, it's very clear that everything, that vision has fallen apart, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about the rest of the fellowship. I I think um, Gandalf's character is a unique guiding figure. He has more complexity than what we expect from uh, the Yoda guide, right? Um, or the person helping the hero on the journey. The rest of the characters have um, different interactions with uh, Frodo on it, on its journey. Um, from Aragorn being able to have an early introduction with him to and his party being a kind of a pillar of protection uh, on their journey. Um, I think... Aragorn is like so cool in this movie with his like the whole Strider thing going <laughs> on. Um, he's got like he he is just a force to be reckoned with. Uh, that's le- it's more brutish compared to like Legolas, who's uh, more ninja, um, or Gimli, who's like juggernaut, like just <laughs> kind of stumbling <laughs> through a battlefield. Yeah, um, he he is very very strong and, and, um, the, like the hobbits love him right away. Um, the same way that they love Boromir, who's the most interesting man in this movie, I think. Yeah. Um, he, uh, is from Gondor. He's, he is the heir of the, like, uh, what is it? The step in the steward or something? Uh, Uh, yeah. The steward of, of Gondor. So you find out halfway through that, Aragorn has a claim to the throne and has not taken it mm-hmm. and doesn't really want it, which is a is is obviously all credit to Tolkien setting up these characters to be very interesting. Uh, and then Boromir, who kind of is chin up, 
having weird interactions with Aragorn and only to realize, oh wait, this guy could be my king. It's a very strange power relationship between them. Um, but uh, Boromir is the most interesting because he believes in a vision for the ring that's different than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody says, yeah, we should probably destroy it. And Boromir says we could use it. And he's in the party. So he, he's got an alternate intention. Or, uh, uh, yeah, an alternate intention compared to everyone else. And I think Tolkien really nails Boromir's like presence in this movie. I think it's different than what you experience in the book, if I remember correctly. Like, reading the book, Boromir is much more on the side and comes into play um, further towards the end mm-hmm. with his uh, with his betrayal. But I think they do a great job with um, looping him in early Rivendell to the council, to the that, uh, that great scene in the snow where Frodo falls and he, like, picks up the ring. Um, it's all from the source material, but I just felt like Sean Bean's performance in this movie, uh, it's... It's my favorite from him, I think. It's so good. Uh, and his... Uh, you you were commenting, like, his instant regret after the confrontation at the yeah. end. Uh, it's so dramatic, like, the, the way he has all the stuff in his hair and he's, like, crying almost to him fighting to the end. Uh, it's just a... It's a whirlwind of emotion. You like him... He's strong, and then you feel a sliminess about him to him being your least favorite to him also then all of a sudden becoming like like a savior or like very strong towards the end or sacrifice, right? Like he just has um, highs and lows to his character that makes him so intriguing on a second, third, fourth watch. Um, and he really steals the show compared to the other guys that have their spotlight in, in later parts of the trilogy. Yeah. Um, Well, and I think, I think his, his character as sort of the fallen, um, uh, like the, not just the fallen hero, but, um, you know, the person who is challenging the, um, the notion that the ring in itself is evil. Um, you know, and and he's he's sort of the way that we get some of the sort of philosoph- philosophical um, intrigue about about the ring is smuggled in in some ways. You know, he's he's the one who's sort of well, we can use the ring to um, to uh, destroy um, y- you know destroy evil and to bring our lands back to um, you know back to glory and to restore the, the lands of my people. And, um, he has these sort of grandiose ideas about the way that he'll, he'll use the ring. And, um, as we've seen early on in the movie, um, you know, with the, um, actually it's, it's not in the intro, but it's, it's with Elrond, um, recanting the story of, um, how he was there when what's his face, um, decided not to throw the ring in uh, in Mount Doom. What's the, what's that guy's name? I forget. Isildur. Um, Isildur. Yeah, um, yeah. And how he he saw how the ring used its sort of manipulative um, power to um, to corrupt Isildur 
um, into thinking that he's he's able to, you know, harness the power of the ring. Um, yeah, and I th- I think I I don't know. It's a great um, it's a great story for for a you know. There's obviously that that setup of of the the mythos of the ring, and then to see it play out with someone in the fellowship, uh, someone in, in in the party. I think that I think you know, honestly, it's a really great way to do that. Um, to have him, uh, have him take the like Isildur's path almost. Um, yeah, is really interesting. Yeah, and the and I guess we could we can get to the rest of the cast in our later reviews because I feel like Gimli, Legolas, we're gonna have more to to kind of chew on with them. Of course, Aragorn with uh, or Aragorn with the. Um, Return of the King, and he has a lot of great development in the second film as well. Uh, Mary Pippin, Sam, he'll have his moment, you know. Um, I, th- I, I think you mentioning Isildur. We have to talk about the beginning of this movie. How it has mm. like the storybook intro, um, very epic introduction. It's <laughs> almost like the Star Wars crawl, but done in a way that's so much more exciting and exhilarating i mentioned you know dune has a lot of what i love about lord of the rings and its intro is like nothing compared to to this this uh movie's intro it's just so bland in comparison they're like we're people in the sand and then the movie begins right um it does it does a cool it does a cool intro with uh i'm, I'm recalling dune where it's like oh like house arkadan and then they just left and then it's like the title, right? Yeah. Which yeah. is like, it's, it's a good setup, but it's not as good as this where you get like, feels like generations of lore being passed down and it was there and then it was gone, you know? Um, I remember the Amazon series that I did watch and is quite mid has a great um, recall to the beginning of, of the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy it 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 starts with a strong battle as well, uh, recalling I think maybe even the same battle that's shown in this in this uh, movie because the that story takes place before, right after the war and the and the fall of Sauron. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a great iconic opening. Um, it really works. When I th- think if you read it to me on paper, I would say that's so boring and not that good. You know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's a, it's an interesting choice and a little bit bold because I think in some ways, um, you can see sort of a recap intro being like done horribly wrong, um, but I think it works in the way that, um, you know, it's sort of about the, um, it, it truly is a setup for the, for the rest of of the series and and it gets you up to speed in terms of, um you know, what this entity is, but it doesn't give you too much. You know, it really is able to, um, to pique your interest. Um, I think it's also great that there's a, um, you know, kind of an awesome fight sequence. It gets you hooked in that way too. Just, you know, movie wise, there's, there's something very interesting about that before you get into the, um, (laughs) you know, 45 minutes of, of Hobbit lore, 
Um, you know, it's it's interesting to it's good to have you know something kind of action packed at at the beginning, and, and there are other movies that do this that are that do it so cheaply and terribly. Um, I think like doesn't like um, doesn't the Justice League have a have like a extended intro sequence or something like that? I don't know. I feel like there's there's ways to do that really poorly. Um, to like introduce your villains, maybe this is the only time that it that it is good. I guess I don't know because um, I feel like it's hard to it's hard to pull off something like this. Um, but it I don't know to me to me it really works. I I like the um, I like jumping you into this um, sort of action packed uh, lore heavy. Um, intriguing opening about about the the dangers and the um you know the the power that that we're about to face in the next trilogy um contrasting that with you know with with the hobbits basically with the the sort of peace and um you know peace and 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 relative calm of of the shire um i think it works really well also, I do want to say, um, as far as all three of these movies have killer opening sequences. I mean, y- yes. y- you can't deny it. Um, and I mean, I, I love, obviously, Two Towers has just an amazing opening. Um, but, you know, maybe my favorite is the the opening of, you know, telling the story of Gollum in, in, in the third one. So, um, I don't know. I think I think it's... I think it works really well. Um, gets you into into the world and and kind of um, I don't know. It it treats it treats the story like it's it's been going on for ages and you're now just getting caught up. This is like the fairy tale um, before you jump into into the real world in some ways. Yeah, and I just want to point out about this intro as well. Creative decision. From Peter Jackson. The book it does not have this thick intro. No, no, uh, yeah, of course not. And uh all it has, I'm I'm reading through it right now. I pulled up the ebook. There is a page even before the to- the title, um the uh the table of contents, at least at this uh this retail anniversary one, but it just ha- it says three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in the halls of stone, nine for the mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lo- lord on his dark throne, in the land of Mordor while shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring. Right? So that's the part that uh, Gandalf uh, talks about later, right? Um, but the prologue of the book is concerning hobbits. Yeah. So I mean at this point we're like what 15 minutes into the film it feels like around concerning hobbits cuz this is, concerning hobbits is the prologue right Yeah so it's all the shire context right with the extended edition it's going it's it we're not even to chapter 1 and the movie's run for 20 minutes you know <laughs> and <laughs> chapter 1 is long ex- expected party and it says when Bilbo Baggins from Baggin announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 11, <laughs> 11th birthday, right? <laughs> so we're just to the birthday is chapter one. That's the first thing. Um, so it's it's pretty 
<laughs> it's pretty uh pretty wild. Um although I guess the movie does take a little bit out of context cuz it's like it doesn't start with the birthday. It it says the birthday's about to start and then it's Frodo in the field, right? Um yeah. I mean the the source material is so good. Tolkien's source material. There's a reason it was popular before these movies were made. There's a reason there was animated movies. Um he he's clearly a visionary with with what he was trying to write and able to put his human touch into something that's a, uh, a fairy tale. I mean, we talked a little bit when recording about his experience with world war one and, and kind of, I think that's probably what also spurred our conversation around deer hunter. Um, that, that those are nostalgic emotions and, and traumas, uh, being forced into a journey that was darker than the adventure you expected all of that stuff comes forward with this, along with spiritual aspects for Tolkien that he's exploring. Um, it's it's just impressive that so much of that was able to be absorbed like a sponge uh, in in mm. this film and translated in a way that uh, the audience has that clear setup and payoff uh, for, through Frodo's journey in the Fellowship, and then there's all these other details in the extended edition that just continue to support and not take away. Um, I, 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 my last complaint, cause we're getting, we're, we're going to wrap up here with fellowship. We could, we could talk on and on and on about this movie and we'll get more and more into the Lord of the Rings stuff in the casting. Um, I just have to throw it out there. It's always bugged me. The scene with the breaking bridge, uh, <laughs> Casa doom, the bridge of Casa doom, uh, where they're crumbling and, <laughs> Aragorn has to jump across with Frodo. I'm like, that whole scene is just way too long. It always bugs me. I have no <laughs> idea why it's so long. Um, but it's because the bridge crumbles like four times, you know, yeah, in, in like inconvenient <laughs> sections. Come on, get on with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so some scene like that scene it goes on too long, and I'm sure it's in theatrical. Uh, that's just kind of a funny complaint for me. Um, but Let's talk about some of your favorite um, action scenes because it is an action movie. Uh, just yeah. to wrap up, I think the greatest action scene mo- uh, moment in this movie, although the ending is probably on par, but I love the part, and I always loved it in the book too, where he's reading uh, the last bloody sentence of the dwarves in that in that. Uh, death room and then they kind of have that strategic moment where uh you know i think pippin knocks the thing down the uh <laughs> the well and Full just the, yeah yeah that whole interaction where he's like he's reading about what's happened to these dwarves and they're like, yeah all the bodies are everywhere and they're in it and he's like oh my goodness like and then they are put in that situation again a setup and a payoff uh and a double payoff with you know the or it's just more and more payoffs with, um, with the Balrog. Yeah, with or yeah, <laughs> there's the Balrog, but there's also um, the armor that we were talking about. Mm, Straight yeah, into the, yeah, them yeah. running with the with the Balrog, you're finally figuring out what's going on there. Um, oh, okay, something there is something greater, and then the devastation after uh, the Mines of Moria. Yeah, it, well, it, one it, thing I I noticed in this one, you know, speaking of those those setups and payoffs. Um, you know, that moment where uh, Gandalf has the realization that, like, going through the, the Mines of Moria, 
we're going to probably hit <laughs> a great, um, you know, beast that is going to be really tough. Um, I, I have always, I, I guess I never really was cognizant of it, but you know, they had there, there's that cutaway of, um, of Saruman and he's, you know, he's sort of looking at the picture of, of the Balrog, um, and kind of like willing them to, to go down there. Um, I don't know. It's just a, just an interesting touch, I guess. Um, I, I, th- I thought that was, um, neat this time around, I guess. Yeah. The Balrog, awesome looking, great yeah. design with like him being a negative space creature where he's like just shadow and the smoke and fire like animates his features. Yeah. Um, really well done with that. And then I think, um, just to talk about other action scenes, I mean, we could talk about the, the jump to Huckleberry fairy or a weather top fight. All that stuff is good, but the ending with Boromir and the horn, you have multiple parties running from different directions, you know, uh, Mary and Pippin need help. There's that moment where Aragorn has a confrontation with Frodo, uh, on that, on that hilltop and, um, him just kind of understanding it's all good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the slow-mo with that army of, of Urukai coming up. Like, I just love that again, if it's a Lego set, you know, it'd be a great Lego <laughs> set right there. Um, so, well, and I love, um, you know, another interesting character moment of Merry and Pippin. They they have a moment where they're hiding away from from the Urukai, um, you know, as as Aragorn is is awesomely uh, slashing through a horde of them, um, and they see Frodo, and they're basically like, "Hey, like, come, like, uh, come with us," basically. And then uh, one of them is smart enough to realize that he's you know he's leaving he's not coming back yeah um and they make kind of an ultimate sacrifice of um you know jumping out into the crowd of urukai to distract from uh from frodo um and i don't know there, there's just like little moments like that all throughout the trilogy but just just moments where um you get these these little touches of um of of character realization, and I was saying yesterday that um, every every character sequence that you get with with the um, uh, with the hobbits, it's always them showing like an astounding amount of bravery. Um, you know, whereas all of the character moments that you get with the humans, it's always kind of uh, except Aragorn is a little, uh, he's, he's not very selfish, but there's a, there's like a tinge of, of selfishness throughout every decision that, that a lot of the humans make. Um, and I think, I think for the hobbits, there's, there's never that it, it feels like, it always feels like them sort of sacrificing themselves for, uh, for their friends or for the, the greater objective. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think that this movie has a great balance of so much. I'm curious to visit Two Towers and um, Return of the King. I always think that Return of the King is better than Two Towers, 
And I'm kind of curious how that's going to go. Because Two Towers, the last time I watched it, it had more character moments than I remembered. Uh, it felt more like The Fellowship than I expected. And then Return of the King is just like, just so much battle. Like so much action <laughs> yeah, yeah. for so long. Um, but it's kind of a payoff, right? You're kind of excited about it when, once yeah. it all goes down. So, um, Last thing to shout out with this movie, and we're going to wrap up, but uh, it relates back to our conversation about the intro. Uh, we cannot mention this film without it. Howard Shore's score uh, is what brings this movie together. Uh, he is the Gandalf of the production. You know, <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think the intro works without him. I actually think so many of the impactful moments don't work without Howard Shore's attention to detail with eerie anthems or, you know, heroic horns hitting at certain times. Um, every single time I watch this movie, uh, when Lord of, the Lord of the Rings text hits and that little uh, haunting melody, the... Like, it's like, it's always gives me the goosebumps. I remember the first time I watched the movie, it captured so much of what made me scared reading the book at night. Um, <laughs> and you always said the Hobbit scene was boring for you at the beginning. For me, it was so comforting because I was really yeah. terrified to see what was going to happen after reading the books. <laughs> uh, so that whole section with the birthday, I was like, let's just stay here, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. uh, I know. Don't that, leave. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> the hooded riders are going to be stabbing people at night and. You know, we're going to be down in the claustrophobic caves. I just, I, it, it's, it has so much, um, going for it. And the, and the music is something that isn't in the book at all, right? The music yeah. is such a, uh, such a masterful creative expression, uh, in, in this franchise. And, um, it's just, I can't even imagine Lord of the Rings without this score either. Um, true. And so that that's why it's like the highest praise to Howard Shore and what he did with that. I'm gonna look up Howard Shore. I'm gonna talk about him for a second. But Cameron, anything you want to add to uh, the conversation around the music? No, I mean it's it's obviously classic. I love um, it. It it's mysterious, um, and then I don't know. It always just fits the mood uh, beautifully well. Um, everyone has their. Um, you know, sort of thematic elements. And I think even, even towards the later movies, a lot of, a lot of payoff and setup and payoff, even with the music, um, you know, having these themes sort of stretch through and, um, everyone's, you know, sort of individual, uh, you know, thematic music kind of follows them and, and changes throughout the, um, you know, throughout the series. So it's, it's a great, um, you know, it's a great, great score. Um, nothing else to say about it. Hmm. And he did all of the Hobbit as well, which I remember having still some great music in there. Um, obviously the Hobbit has more singing in it, <laughs> which was an interesting decision, but, uh, part of the book, so can't, yeah, can't get away with it. Um, music from the Twilight Saga, you know, can't deny that. 
I never watched those movies. Hugo's original score. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything else that he's really known for. Uh, I think he did the uh, Silence of the Lambs uh, score. Wow. Departed. He's on there Mm -hmm. for The Departed. He... I mean, I mean, Lord of the Rings score influenced so much of what we experience in fantasy in general now. I yeah. Mean, you yeah. think about Skyrim's score, which is iconic. That wouldn't be there without the French horns in the Lord of the Rings score. I mean, that yeah. is what goes into that. I mean, even, even uh, what's shown in, in games like The Witcher and things like that has so much of it so much creative influence from what Howard Short did uh, with this. So he did seven. So Howard Short knows what's up. He does. He does. He kind of popped off in the nineties. I think missed out fire. Never know. Tons of lambs. And then right into Lord of the Rings. At at that point, Lord of the Rings just retire, you know, why (laughs) not? He's he's done some other ones in there too. I could have swore he did a Pixar movie. Did he not do Pixar? Juzo's gonna be screaming. All right, Cameron, closing remarks. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a great it's a great movie. Um, it's it is weird to think about this movie just in the context of of it being you know its own thing. But I think it does probably hold up the best in terms of it being one condensed movie. Um, it's a great way to kick off the series. It, it, you know, truly shows that there was something special going on on set. Oh, obviously we didn't mention, um, the New Zealand landscape, uh, just the beauty of, of the, you know, the beauty of the adventure. It feels like nowhere else on earth, you know, it feels like a different land. Um, you know, just, just great, uh, great decisions all around. I think, it's one of those movies where you're like, I feel nostalgia about it, uh, where like, it's almost like the, a movie like this can probably never be made again in, yeah. in a weird way. Um, just because it was right at the precipice of, of using practical event uh, effects, you know, they, they basically employed an entire country's, uh, like metalworking, <laughs> uh, um, industry like everyone was working you know towards this movie and it really shows i mean it's 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 a beautiful it feels like a well-worn in um world and yeah there's something about it that that really kicks it off strong i can't wait to uh um to watch the rest and i don't know you want to come over want to hang out watch the second one I'm we down. gotta watch it i gotta <laughs> watch it at some point yeah so um yeah no i i cannot recommend this movie enough at least watch this one if you don't want to watch the whole trilogy um but i don't see how you don't want to see it to the end if you watch this and you don't want to keep watching well at least you saw this one so yeah uh give the fellowship a chance if you have not um and with that i guess we will wrap up we post every tuesday we'll be back next week for the two towers review thank you for listening to the show We'll catch you next week.
Cinema Spectator is an ECFS Productions podcast that is fully funded on Patreon.com. Shout out to our producers, Darren O'Neill, for supporting the show and to the rest of you that support us at Patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. If you want to learn more about the benefits you can get, check out our Patreon. The show cannot happen without you great listeners, so we thank you for all your kindness and support.